you know, I just like you, I had my doubts, but it's the best thing ever. They have given us the tools and the things that we needed to grow bigger. We've done more than I ever thought possible. And we haven't had to put up with things that, that I thought would be a detriment from outside our industry. It has been truly beneficial for it. And, and I think that goes to Michael Maladon and the team that, that Elway Group has in place to, to transition our motorcycle stores. Um, Robert Kay, who is an NPA board member. Everybody, welcome back to this latest episode of Dealership Fix It. I'm your host, Jacob Berry. And uh, today, super excited to have on the editor of Dealer News. His name is Robin Hartfield. And uh, today we got him on to talk a little bit about Dealer News and the history that he's got with the industry. So just want to say welcome, Robin. Nice to have you, man. Well, thanks for having me, Jacob. Pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So you are definitely a, a big voice. Uh, I'll, I'll label you as that, right? You, you certainly are the arbiter of a lot of information out there in terms of one of only a handful of industry-specific publications with Dealer News there. And you guys have been around for 50 years, right? Celebrating our 50th anniversary. Is that correct? Uh, actually, it is more like 56. The uh, magazine was founded in 1965 by Larry Hester and Bill Bagnell. Uh, and they also created the IMS Show Tour. They created the Dealer, Dealer News Dealer Expo. And there was a point in time when those two gentlemen had probably 30% of every dollar spent in the aftermarket went through their channels. And the OEMs then were using the IMS Tour. So they were getting a, a piece of that pie too. So it, it goes back a ways. Uh, we, we used to be really, really big in a, a big fish in a smaller industry. Well, certainly times have changed with uh, the internet and maybe some of that print, uh, you know, not as popular as it once was, but certainly a, a huge, huge voice in the industry. So um, the way that I always like to start out, uh, Robin, is just kind of telling me a little bit about you, the person, and maybe some of the experience that you've had within the industry and the different uh, types of businesses within power sports that you've worked in. Um, it uh, goes back to the beginning when they told me that I couldn't do anything and they were probably right. Um, I was never really good as a, a motorcycle racer, I was never really good, even in the fast food industry of remembering to upsize that and getting the, the fries order in. So by default, I decided the easiest and path of least resistance was to become a, a magazine guy. And that way I got to go everywhere, go to all the races, do everything that, that I wanted to do um, in, in a manner that I could do it. So I got lucky. And, and what year about did you get into the industry uh, in the magazine field? Started freelancing in 1980 and then was an intern with uh, Off-Road Magazine and VW Porsche in 82 through 84. And then when I graduated from college, got a full-time job at a local newspaper, earned my chops as, as a real journalist, and then I uh, went to work for uh, McMullen Publishing, which I started as, as VW Trends editor, of all things. And within a week, I was editor of VW Trends, uh, editor of All About Beer Magazine, and the launch team that launched Splash, Four Wheel Drive Action Magazine, and half a dozen other titles in pretty rapid succession. Nice, nice. Okay, so you've been a journalist for a very long time. Um, what, besides the not being good at uh, you know motorcycles or fast food? I mean, was that always just a passion of yours that you you know realistically wanted to just go into and write stories and interview people? Not so much the writing and interviewing, just being around motorcycles themselves. Um, loved it. Don't know why I got bit by the bug when I did as early as I did, but I didn't see any other path other than, than being involved in the industry somehow. Uh, it. took okay. a roundabout way. Uh, 
little stints at All About Beer magazine probably detoured my power sports career a little bit, but um, it was all good experience. Well, certainly a veteran when it comes to looking at the industry as a whole and seeing all the different changes and dynamics that have happened throughout the years. What would you say are some of the some of the biggest changes you've seen in your in your long career in, in the publishing field? Saw the the rise and crash of the three wheelers and CPSC's mandates that transformed our industry. Saw us go from a, an absolute low point in in unit sales after the glory days of of on any Sunday and you, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. Um we crashed and burned pretty hard as an industry. We lost more than 50% of the total market and even more so when three wheelers were completely banned. And I just, I came on board dealer news in 1990 as a consultant and they asked me what I saw. And I said, I don't see a future for it. You guys need to get out now. So they brought me on board to, to see what I could do to stop the inevitable from happening. Just got lucky that we went on a 13 year run of double digit growth year over year, over year, over year until the 08 crash. So um, I've been a magazine editor at a trade only magazine um, during the glory days and also during the the crash and burn days. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the three wheelers were a huge hit and I, I'm I'm a little younger to not remember the crash itself, but I certainly, you know, I'm a fan of the three wheelers. I own a couple of them now and I like to rebuild them, pull them out of sheds. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all with that, uh, with the Honda three wheelers, the ATC seventies, the two fifty R's. I mean, just a, just a really weird dynamic on how that all became a media spin to classify them as a product from the devil. I think that was the ABC News piece that they they took a hit on that particular you know segment of the of the Honda brand. But the this, nice thing that the media said about us, we were baby killers, and it got worse from that. And yeah. that was sixty minutes, and everybody was on a witch hunt. And we weren't uh, unified as an industry. We didn't defend ourselves all that well, so we basically literally fell off a cliff. And it took us a long time to to regroup and, and rebrand ourselves, and for four wheelers to replace the three wheelers. And now you see the the evolution of the UTV side of the market. But you go back to the beginning. We were motorcycle dealer news. It was three word name. And when I came on board, when I said you're not going to make it, I dumped the motorcycle thing. That was too limiting because watercraft. I'd already done splash. We we were broadening. It was power sports. It wasn't just motorcycles. And even through the, the best times of the three wheel market, I would go into a dealership and I would ask them, "What are you?" And so they would look at me and it's like, "What do you mean?" It's like, "Well, what kind of dealer are you? We're a motorcycle dealer." Then how come 90% of your sales are three wheels? And same thing. Now with UTVs, there's certain dealers out here in the Southwest. They're UTV dealers. They may have one or two motorcycles in the, in the back, or they may, the owner may still ride his own bike, but we're not a motorcycle dealer industry anymore. We're power sports. We've evolved and, and changed over the years. Some good, some bad, but definitely always a change. If you're a motorcycle and power sports dealer, you already know. The biggest marketplace websites are clunky, slow, and riddled with ads. Even if you pay big bucks to list your inventory, your competitors can pay even more to outrank you. That's why we created Moto Hunt. Our site is famously streamlined and quick, with no extra nonsense to confuse buyers or dealers. That's why we rank so high in search results without having to spend millions in advertising. Why pay three times as much? At Moto Hunt, one low price covers everything a dealer needs to get their inventory listed and collecting leads fast with no multi-level pricing tiers and no way for your competition to out-premium you. No matter how many listings or leads you generate, your subscription price is the same. Click the link to find out how Moto Hunt can help you start generating more leads today. That's a great point that you bring up. Yeah, it's it's the evolution of the industry and we're kind of catering to the customer's trends and also what the OEMs are more or less seen as the shining light on the hill for their next big product hit, kind of like the three-wheelers were back in the day. How does Dealer News and, and you, Robin, how do you guys stay 
you know, relevant to talk about these different subjects when it's shifting so quickly from, like you said, three-wheelers back to motorcycles, now into ATVs to UTVs. There's a lot of really smart, talented people that are actual motorcycle dealers or power sports dealers, we'll call it what it is. I don't have to know anything. I just have a seat at the table and I listen to the smart people talk. And then I try and take notes and follow along with their lead. And going back to the very beginning, when I said it was going to fail, I did talk to one of my first dealer profiles and he was a college professor. And he said, no, there's always going to be a need for something. And it may be a hydrogen powered hovercraft. And he said this in, in the eighties, yeah. that, that's what's going to happen in the future. But there's a certain percentage of uh, the human race that's hardwired to be thrill seekers and, and to get that enjoyment. And they will be our customer base. And it may not be as big as, as we want it to be, and it may not go down the path we think it's going to, but we scratch an itch and that itch has to be serviced by a dealer somewhere. And he'd planned to, to do that his entire career. And he did. Uh, that's certainly how the bug bit me is the thrill seeking. I, I was an enthusiast before I was anything in this industry. So I'm right there along with you, as long as they keep making these products to you know pump up that adrenaline and kind of get the juices flowing, we'll call it, there will always be a place for these types of products in, in the marketplace. So that's that's cool. And I and as far as the we may not want it to be as big as we want it to be. I think Jason Gerald from uh motorcycle industry jobs on a previous podcast, he he was kind of mentioning that too. It's like, well, you know, we're we're kind of comfortable with our audience size of the people who not only work in this industry, but also we cater to the customers. And do we always want more? Yes, but it's a nice manageable size that we can always produce enough product for and be involved in the industry as an enthusiast. It's it's interesting, interesting little business we got. I, right, well, in I don't have to, to worry about that. The dealer network is not going to grow. So I, I reach a great percentage of the audience and I don't have to worry about fighting the newsstand wars like I used to or growing my market other than on my side job as a motorcycle industry council board of directors member. Yes, that's one of our, our primary mandates is how do we expand our industry? How do we keep everybody growing and happy? And then also as an advisor to the National Power Sports Dealer Association, same thing. How do I keep my dealer friends? How do we keep this industry expanding? And we, we got lucky. COVID was a, created a, a bubble. We sold through three years worth of dead inventory. We cleaned the books. We started fresh. And now we're back to a level set. So Jim Woodruff from National Power Sport Auctions has talked about it. And he was on the last MIC symposium. A lot of smart guys, again, who have talked about it. And I listen. And what they say is that don't use the, the COVID numbers for anything. Go back and look at 2019. Where were you in 2019? Did you pick up five to 10% customers? Do you have these customers for life? Then you should be happy. Your business grew and you cleared out the dead inventory. You now focus on the future. Where do you go from here? But don't come in expecting 30% growth over 22 or 2020 even. It's because it's not going to happen. Well, let's talk about that, right? So you you came in, you know, after the the three-wheel, you know, market kill off there by the just the the crazy witch hunt that the media was on. And you said basically to dealer news as you started there, hey, you need to get out of this business. It's 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 not going anywhere. I mean, how do you feel now about the industry many, many years later and some of the struggles that we're in, mostly for economic reasons, right? High interest rate, you know, for financing, that's a majority of how we get our products in our consumers' hands. And, you know, inventory logistics, I mean, all the factors that are combined to make a tougher retail environment. How are you feeling about the outlook now? Same way. If you manage your expectations, then you'll be fine. If you overexceed or you have to report to an absentee board of directors or an overseas OEM that is dictating policy without being boots on the ground, then you may not succeed. And you'd only need to look as far as the dealers. They'll tell you what their business is. They will tell you to the unit what they can sell to their market, what their hopes and expectations are. Um, but I think as an industry, historically, we have probably not listened to our dealers like we should have. Those guys are on the, the bleeding edge of our industry. I, I don't need a, a bean counter 
in another country to tell me what's going to be successful in the United States market. I would rather go to these guys who have been here for 20, 30, 40. And now you're seeing Yamaha have out awards for 50 and 60 year dealers. Honda, the same thing. Those guys came in in the 60s. And some of those family run dealerships are still family run dealerships, still doing what they always did and still succeeding at it versus these, these outside forces that are trying to change our industry from out from under us. You mentioned earlier about listening to the dealers. How, how do you and how does Dealer News you know, collaborate and listen to these dealers and tackle some of these issues head on? Been really lucky. Um, when I did come on board, I knew that it was not me. It was the Dealer News name that earned me a seat at that table. So uh, you're given two ears and one mouth and you're supposed to use them in that proportion. A couple of times I've let my big mouth get myself fired from another magazine job, but always the bottom line has been Pay attention to what the, the industry is saying and, and follow along with that. We're in a, a unique position. Is Dealer News in a leadership role? Yeah, most likely we are. Am I a journalist? Should I be chronicling what happened and not interjecting myself into the middle of the story? Absolutely. However, I stopped being a journalist the day that I started full-time with Dealer News. My objectivity went out the window. My role became cheerleader. I need to make sure that we have a business environment that sustains, educates, informs, and entertains our readership. And so with that mission in mind, that's what, what my guiding light's been. And part of that is, is just basic open discussion. I talk to dealers all day, every day, and it's awesome. I, I have the best job in the world because I get to work with the best people in the world. And the fact that they can find the time to tell me some of the things that they do, that's, that's a bonus. I agree 100%. I, I feel the same exact way. I get to talk to dealers nearly on a daily basis and from all over the country in different size stores and different roles. And yeah, they're 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 saying a lot. And if they're asking questions, I'm hoping to have an answer to the, some of that. But you know, you mentioned earlier, just two ears, one mouth, listening to these dealers. I mean, what what types of things are these dealers saying that they're currently having challenges with that they may need help on, or that they could discuss openly to say, "Hey, I'm having a problem with this," or "I'm not feeling great about this part," or even adversely, "Hey, we have some wins under our belt." What what are the what are the things that dealers are saying now? The funny thing is that this industry. Going back to 1903 or 1901, depending on what date you want, the <laughs> motorcycle market's been around that whole time. We've never had an association. There's been random state associations, but even those had fallen on hard times. And there's only four or five really good, active, viable state dealer associations that protect their membership. So that was one of Dealer News's rallying cries brought forth by our owner, Bob Altoff, who is a dealer. And he said, we need to create a National Power Sport Dealer Association. And I told him, just like I told the original Dealer News group, not going to happen. Don't waste your time. Well, here we are. Uh, NPDA is celebrating its two-year anniversary. They'll be celebrating three years at AM Expo in 2024. Dealers now have a voice. They have power. They have 400 plus members and growing. By the time AM Expo rolls around, they'll have over 500 members. And they have uh, companies within the, the, the aftermarket and the allied trades and the banking and finance industry that are all now listening to NPDA. And NPDA is collecting the wisdom of the dealers and transmitting it to the people that need to hear it. And, and as impartial as they can and professionally done as they can, rather than some dealer who just lost his business screaming about franchise loss. No, this is an impartial and, and um, really well-meaning group that is going to convey the proper message that's going to benefit everybody in, in the industry. I've uh, seen a lot from NPDA quite a bit. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, submit my application to join them uh, hopefully soon. But yeah, I, I hear a lot from Bob. I hear a lot from uh, Mark Sheffield, especially on LinkedIn, uh, You know, rallying that battle cry for proper risk representation in the space. How does NPDA and Dealer News associate themselves with, you know, together in the industry to kind of be a driving force of, uh, you know, 
of what of proper proper tips best practices oem news how does all that fit in into itself dealer news uh and going back to the top 100 program that uh, ran for 25 years and hopefully we'll be coming back has always celebrated retail excellence that's peer pressure but it's also peer recognition and so that was my motivation for dealer news aligning with npda was we need to promote retail excellence we need the dealers to be better at what they do we need to share the the best practices that we have so that's that's how our involvement started and there were like-minded uh, advisors who for the good of the industry basically dropped everything and and helped the dealers help themselves so our role is purely advisory but i've been in every meeting two years before there was an npda we were meeting a year before there was an npda we ran the the uncle sam cover saying hey time is now actually you missed the boat you need to form an association and it's happened so yeah we're, we're interjecting ourselves into the story somewhat but we're not trying to take over the narrative that is up to the dealers themselves npda is a 501c corporation they have a board of directors they adhere to all of the the roberts rules of orders and standard meetings and all of that stuff so it is it's best practices from an organizational standpoint as well as from a dealer standpoint I love that. And and do they differ much from some of the things that have been around for a while, like, you know, 20 groups or, you know, we've, we talked about MIC earlier. I know that's a little different, but, you know, there's these organizations that bring together these dealers to talk about retail excellence or, uh, you know, manufacturers or even advocacy uh, and laws in a state or federally, right? How does, how does it differ from some of that stuff? Everybody's got their swim lane. So um, the way that uh, I see it and being an MIC board member, MIC uh, is, is our industry association. NPDA is the Dealers Association and AMA is the Writers Association. So they're, they're a triangle here, three-legged okay. stool that, that props up our entire industry. Everybody's got their swim lane. Certainly things overlap with that. And Dealer News is in the, the, the middle of, of all of those. We work with the AMA. I work with the MIC directly and indirectly through the magazine and the same thing with NPDA. So we, we try and take all of that and, and merge it into to some sort of coherent message. Uh, I write better than I speak, thank goodness. I, I think you speak great, man. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I okay. So um, I'm. Le- that's a great way to put it. I never thought of it that way. The three-legged stool: AMA for writers, MIC for industry, and the NPDA for dealers. Okay. Well, just kind of shifting gears back to dealer news as the publication, right? Um, you guys have a lot of uh, you know industry topics. Um, what would you say are some of your most memorable meetings with dealers or interviews with you know certain dealers on? you know, how well they're performing at a store, some, you know, acquisitions. I mean, just give us maybe your top one or two stories of things that you've been directly involved with as a journalist for Dealer News and, you know, kind of highlighting some wins in our industry. Well, maybe um, I can tie it into one dealer specifically, but going back to when I first started at the job, um, because of the this trade show and the trade magazine and all of that, we get lots of calls, questions. I also had some roommates in college that knew what I was doing and they knew just enough to be dangerous. So they would call and leave messages saying, oh yeah, Mert Lawo on line one. And I would pick it up and it's my roommate. And it's like, hey, bring beer home for dinner. And it's like, shut up. So one day uh, I pick up the phone and I get buzzed in. I'm in the studio, not in, the, in my office. So I can't see, there's no caller ID or anything back in the day. This is 91. And so I just pick up the phone. Yeah, what do you want? And I'm assuming that they've been given a fake name. No, it's the Malcolm Smith. Malcolm's got a question about Dealer Expo. And I just yelled at him and he's going, oh, sorry, my name is Malcolm Smith. And I have a little shop out in Riverside. And it's like, man, I am so sorry, Malcolm. You're the reason I got onto motorcycles in the first place. Um, never happened again. So he never let me live that down. I never lived that down personally. Then fast forward, um, I'm roommates with Alexander Smith on a couple of junkets. And we're, um, I won't say best friends, but certainly we 
we've been through a lot of the, the same things at the same time. When I go out to cover their grand opening of them signing Ducati, Alexander says, well, you have to come for this. This is important to me. It's important to dad. And it's like, yeah, and I'm honored to be there. I'll drop everything and I will come to that store to see that happen because that is a milestone event. And it goes back to, to my earliest days at Dealer News and it still continues to our what February cover of last year was was them getting the Ducati dealership. So it's that sort of continuity and, and uh, camaraderie that that exists within this industry. And and it doesn't matter. Everybody, they're humble, they're gracious, they're focused on what they do, or they go away. There's there's much easier ways to to make a living than to be a motorcycle dealer. So everybody who's in here and has stuck it out is through a thick and thin has a reason and a motivation. And it's up to me to, to listen to that and, and appreciate it for what it is and enjoy it for what it is. And any of the dealers that I work with, the, the MPDA board of directors now has uh, 13 board members. Every one of them, uh, Gail Worth, Lights up a room anywhere she's been. She was Harley's dealer advisory council chair for a couple of years, all of that. Well, one of my first stories was profiling Gail's parents. And now this is second generation and she's every bit the dynamo that, that Ray and Bev were when they were on the cover of Dealer News. And now I've had her on the cover of Dealer News. So that sense of family and and I'm, I'm our industry's biggest cheerleader and in awe of the, the people that do this for a living. And I'm really happy that I still have a, a front row seat to all of this. Well, that's great. And certainly the names that you dropped there are are titans almost in my perspective, right? A, a, a guy that's maybe not has have been in the industry as long as you have, but I see what I see and I know what I know. And those are certainly names that I recognize, maybe not to the level or the depth that you have, but I understand that these are some big players in our space and certainly grateful for the the, the road that they have paved. But you know, I, I almost see you also, Robin, as kind of a documentarian uh, to a sense, right? You're, you're kind of putting together this timeline of the longevity that you've had in the industry, just kind of documenting and more or less putting to profile some of these big players that have made, uh, you know, some influential changes or have been a big voice in our industry. But, you know, to kind of go back on a comment that you made earlier about, you know, a lot of these dealers, they started in the sixties or the seventies and their family owned dealerships. What I have seen lately is a lot of consolidation and maybe some of these guys that have, you know, been in operation for 50, 60 years, maybe they're aging out, they're ready to retire. They just maybe don't want to do it anymore. Or they are looking for a change and maybe, live out their golden years and they not always, you know, give that dealership or pass it down to their family members and they ultimately go to a group. So kind of what is your, what is your outlook on that? Or what have you seen? What do you think about all this consolidation happening in the industry now with a lot of groupings of stores together, maybe some automotive dealers coming into the space and adding on, you know, a Harley dealer or a metric dealer and just kind of making the industry a little bit I guess, you know, a little bit more solidified with some of this bigger money coming into play now. It's bigger money and it's it's bigger ideas, but bigger is not always better. Um, and we've seen cases uh, where consolidation isn't the best path. But recently, um, I talked to Greg Ditus, who's the general manager of a Honda store who got bought up by John Elway's group. Mm-hmm. And so Greg is a, a lifetime dyed-in-the-wool motorcycle enthusiast and a dealer. And he, I mean, started a lot boy and, and took over the dealership. So he he knows his business, he knows his dealership, he knows everything. I asked him, what, what, what's it mean to be part of the Elway Group? And he said, you know, I just like you, I had my doubts, but it's the best thing ever. Um, they have given us the tools and the things that we needed to grow bigger. We've done more than I ever thought possible. And we haven't had to put up with things that, that I thought would be a detriment from outside our industry. It has been truly beneficial for it. And, and I think that goes to Michael Maladon and the team that, that Elway Group has in place to, to transition our motorcycle stores. Um, Robert Kay, who is an NPDA board member, sold his store, Star City, to the Elway Group. 
sold his Harley store flat to them yeah. as well. Um, he, he didn't have an exit plan and he didn't want it to, his life's work to, to go down the tubes. He searched long and hard before he settled with the Elway group. And I, I shouldn't say settled before he um, aspired to, to gain that kind of height. And those stores now, even without Robert K there are succeeding and thriving where even more so than he was able to do during his tenure. So that kind of thing does give me hope. There are, there are professional um, benefits to being affiliated with the outside world. Um, we do not know it all within our own little circle, but we also have some really sharp guys with the 20 groups and stuff that have gotten us this far. And yeah. so I'd, I'd say, yes, let's take it from outside, but I don't want just the venture capital model of pump it and dump it. And that's, there has to be a longevity. There has to be a, a game plan in mind. This is not three to five years. If you buy into a motorcycle dealership, then it better be a lifetime or at least 20 plus years into it. Because it, it again, you're not going to realize the return on your money if you're an investment group. You're, you're not going to return or see the return on your time, blood, sweat and tears and sweat equity on something like this, unless you really love it and you really want it to succeed. And then you will succeed beyond your wildest dreams. I think that's the best part about this industry is for the most part, it is a enthusiast driven industry, even the people that work in it. So I'm right there with you, man. I, uh, I'm not sure if I have an opinion yet on a lot of the consolidation, but it's happening a lot and it, it should be ignored. And it sounds like you've got a couple of uh, good stories of, of successful transfers from family owned to uh, you know, a corporate uh, venture capitalist model or a group model from an automotive dealer. So that's good news to hear. That's good. It's out there. Of course, we can all focus on the negative, but I'd rather accentuate the positive. We, we do have things on the horizon that do look good and we can succeed um, with a modified business model. Doesn't have to be mom and pop anymore. That being said, Dealer News is still, and when I came on board, um, one of the first things, the first issue, in fact, was our February show issue. And they handed that to me and they said, what is wrong with this? And I said, well, there's three trade magazines in the field that are only going to the dealers. And all three of them use the same supplied photo for one of the manufacturers. What is the name of this magazine? Motorcycle Dealer News. I was like, well, Kill the, the motorcycle part. The name of the magazine's dealer news. You need to put a dealer on the front cover. You need to play this up. Mom and Pa Kettle may never be on the, the cover of Time Magazine, but Time Magazine, this is dealer news. This is their magazine. They need to be recognized and celebrated for what they've done within their industry, not what Time Magazine thinks about us. And so from that day on, we started profiling dealers. And just like Racer X discovered, when, when they stopped doing hard race results and product testing, they focused on the feature, or the personalities and the history of our industry and, and the, the people portion of it. They succeeded. Other magazines came and went. And go to the newsstands and, and look and see how few motorcycle magazines of any kind are left. Um, it's you, you got to focus on the people. Run with the ones that that brung us here. I agree wholeheartedly. That that uh, that's one of the main reasons why I love to see the new issues of Dealer News is to focus on the dealers and. <laughs> selfishly, sometimes I go, oh, hey, I'm, I, I know that guy, right? Or I might yeah. want to reach out and, and and talk to him just because you've done such a good, you know, profile on him. But let's let's talk about that, right? So you're talking about, you know, they used to hand you a magazine. Clearly, the the, the print strategy is uh, almost completely faded into oblivion, uh, as far as I'm aware. So how has Dealer News embraced the digital media side, you know, websites, publications, emails, social media? How have you guys kind of shifted to change with the times? Kicking and screaming. Did not want it. I am a print dinosaur. I cannot retain information I see on a screen longer than five seconds. But I've got a deal news archive of bound issues. We've solved the world's problems for 50 years, now almost 60 years. I, I can go back to issue number one and read about the same issues that we face now. And they answered it back then. So we need to, to pay attention to our history. We need that sort of thing. But it's a different world. And everybody in the, the new environment, it's swipe right. And that's where all of their information comes from. So 
I didn't have a, a, a lot of choice uh, because it cost big money to print magazines and it cost even more money to pay postmen to deliver them and all of that. So it, we didn't have to worry about newsstand. We still had a number of, of fixed costs at a magazine that couldn't support it. And when Bob Altoff bought the, the magazine from a, a big publishing company in 2015, um, there was no wherewithal to, to go out and kill trees. So uh, when 2017, when we first started talking about bringing it back, I said, it has to be in a digital environment. It, it has to, to evolve. I don't like it. My goal is to bring it back to, to print product. The, my core of dealer friends still prefer to, to read it. Some of my best work gets read in the bathroom at work, but hey, whatever it is, <laughs> that, that's that's fine. Um, as long as they read it. As long as they read it. And so with as long as they read it, everybody gets it in a different way. So the website consolidates the, the digital monthly magazine. It has uh, two times a week. E-Blast are all there in the news section. There's deep dives off of it. As, as far down the rabbit hole as you want to scroll, you can. Um, and then social media, we have LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or whatever it's called this week. Um, Instagram, all of those things. So however you prefer to get your information as a dealer, we have some sort of touch point there. Our YouTube channel, we don't talk about that. We're over 500,000 views of, of dealer-only videos. Um, but I don't try and monetize it. That's just there to support dealer news. If, if that's how dealers prefer to get their information or they want to go in a, one of these really deep dive profiles, well, we've, we interviewed it. And half the time I, I get the dealer interview live and uncut up online to, to go with what actually makes it into the magazine. But my, my one uh, gift to myself each year is we do a print magazine for AIM Expo. So I, I still... I know what it takes to, to produce a magazine and, and how to do it and how you uh, go back and, and lay it out because it's got to be forms of eight or 16 to, to run on an old sheet Fred press and all these, these little things that I learned the hard way. It still works. We could still do it. I could, I could have a print issue tomorrow if you needed one, but the, the market hasn't asked for that yet. And I, I think it's, the dealers have asked, but nobody's willing to, to pay what it would cost to do that. Right. Right. I think it also has to do with, you know, the changing demographic of your audience. Right. So as, a lot of new, uh, younger people enter the industry in a, like you said, you know, they started as a lot tech and make it to a salesperson or a service guy. And then, you know, all of a sudden, a, a couple of years later, they're running the store, you know, these, these younger people, I, I consider myself one of them. They consume a lot of their information through digital means and having multiple touch points to try to broadcast that message to them on whatever platform of choice that they desire, I think is a good thing. And you guys are staying very relevant on that. So that's, that's awesome that you guys have wholeheartedly embraced that and that that change as a whole to move completely to digital um in terms of other trends not just the digital one but has dealer news or you robin have you seen any other trends or changes to that to that that the, the demographics you you say people because it's we we're not just a bunch of old white guys ex-racers now it is people um yeah. over 20 percent of our readership is now female and it's, this is a trade-only magazine, and yet that's that's the percentage that's being mirrored within our industry. The, the old boys club is finally opened the doors. There are now chances for a Gale Worth to own her own store. Um, going back, though, it, our owner, Bob Altoff, bought the oldest Harley store in the world, A.D. Farrell. Lily Farrell was doing this in the 20s. Uh, it's just taken us a few years to catch up as an industry. But we are, um, I think, as inclusive and diverse in all of the, the buzzwords that you want to include. We've always been that way. But you had to earn your chops to get into this business. And it, it goes, look at, look at the, the stand-up jet skis. You had to want it. You had to have a certain amount of talent. Riding a motorcycle, the same thing. It's not for everybody. Um, but for the, the few that get it, there's nothing better. So um, 
being a dealer, it's not for everyone. The few that get it, I don't care what creed, color, religion, doesn't matter. You you already are worshiping at the altar of the, the industry. And and so we've we've always tried to welcome everybody and anybody that wants to be part of, of the dealer news vision. I love that. You said 20% of your readership is now female. Are you able to talk a little bit more about some of the other demographics? You got age groups in there. Do you have parts of the country? Well, that's being the the social media animals that we are. We get the feedback. We can see exactly who's reading it. We can see who opens every one of these things, who hits delete, uh, how many minutes are spent on page and all that. So yeah, the big brother does know who you are and what you're looking at. And they they give us our little piece of it. I don't know what the world demographics are, but I certainly know what our readership demographics are. And they have shifted considerably to areas where we would have never, not even 15 years ago, would we have thought this would have been our audience. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and you look okay. at the, the, the product evolution, something like uh, K&M with the, the spider and now the right. Yep. They've always gone for a, a different crowd because they, they didn't want to reinvent the wheel. They wanted to, to strike out. So their audience has always been skewed younger, different. It is not the traditional motorcycle customer, but it's a viable active customer base that needs to be paid attention to. So that's where we, we need to stop thinking motorcycle, start thinking power sports, start thinking where our future lies. And it's it's vehicles like that. And then the, the old core will still have motorcycles. You, you look at Honda's 2015 vision statement. Doesn't matter if it's hydrogen powered or electric powered or whatever, they've already stated that the infrastructure globally cannot sustain one of these technologies. It needs to be a, a merger of multiple technologies um, and where they don't have that infrastructure, they will still have a vehicle and there will be a commuter and a, and a logical reason for it. But there will also be a pure fund machine in each category that they're participating in. And that's the company vision. They, they're a mobility company now, not a motorcycle company or an engine company. They're a mobility company with their vision to the future. And that vision just happens to include a recreational component as, as one of their pillars. In your own opinion, do you think that other legacy OEMs are making the same adaptation like Can-Am is with the Spider and Riker to go after that younger crowd? Going after, but you, Can-Am and Riker is, is part of BRP's overall strategy. They also now are playing up the fact that it's 50 years since the, the Can-Am motorcycles, and they've yep. introduced that, but as an electric vehicle. So yeah. they're, they're straddling that line between old and new and, and everything else, playing on the BRP heritage and also BRP's uh, technology and ability to bring a new product to market. So um, that part's exciting. And and I'm a kid in a candy store when it comes to that. I, I think our biggest loss is that there is no more IMS tour to, to go and see the latest and greatest toys. But that being said, I still get to go to dealer meetings and see product rollouts and go to occasional press launches and be the first one to, to play with the new toys. That perk of the job is, is worth it right there because there is a future. There are smart people and, and companies as big as Honda thinking about where do we go with this and where will we be in 2050 and beyond? And to everybody's benefit, they're thinking about that recreational fun component as well as it's just basic mobility. Just living life, man. Uh, in recent years, um, have you have you seen or observed any other trends or other things in power sports that kind of lead you to believe to a brighter future and maybe how dealer news, how have they covered these types of topics? Uh, we have the e-dealer news section, which is a magazine within a magazine, its own cover and all that because e-bikes are topical. Yeah. Well, we, we again a little slow on the uptake, but Honda or Yamaha just celebrated 30 years of its pedal assist program. They've had an e-bicycle in Yamaha's product lineup for 30 years, and yet where was that until just now? Suddenly, yeah. everybody wants it, and and it, that technology is is emerging, and there's more kids riding uh, Chirons and Rars and, and performance e-bikes, and we don't even know what to call them because. Yeah. 
does it have a twist throttle and, and fixed pegs? Is it a motorcycle or is it a bicycle? Well, we don't know, but I do know there's more kids riding those than anything else out there because you don't have to have a license. You don't have to have a track. You can go out and, and be welcomed on two wheels. So technology is changing. The market's changing. We just have to, to stay on top of all of it. And hopefully some of it sticks with future customers. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that electrification uh, on dealer news. Uh, you guys had an article about there about uh, Kawasaki coming out with two of their Ninja versions for their electric motorcycles. You know, those guys are going the motorcycle route, but you've for a while had zero motorcycles. You've got the live wire. You've got a couple other manufacturers that are dabbling. You mentioned BRP with their anniversary motorcycle coming back. What what does Dealer News see about this sudden rush to the electrification of the industry? I know you mentioned infrastructure was a bit of a a sore subject because it can't support just that one thing, not yet, anyways. But is this is this where it's going in Dealer News's eyes? Um, do not know. Um, and that's where I don't interject my personal view on it. I have to cover it. It's a portion of the market. I will pat myself on the back that when I saw the 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 new E Ninja in Milan two years ago, we put that on the cover of E Dealer News. Now all of a sudden it's made it into production and it's it's the hottest topic going. Well, we told our dealers two years ago, hey, look at this. This is where we could be. And guess what? Two years later, that's where we are. So um, I don't have to like it. I don't have to, to ride one personally, but I need to be aware of it. Our readers need to know that's a portion of the market they should pay attention to. We should also be paying to lawn, pay attention to lawnmowers. The Equip Expo is going on uh, starting this week. And it's bigger than the old dealer expo used to be. It's bigger than any IMS event was. The first year that I went, to, it was still called the GIE show, but when I went to the Equip Expo, there were 40 side-by-side manufacturers there. Honda, Kawasaki, all of those companies were there because they have um, OPE product, which is uh, not power sports, but it is gas powered. It is it is marketed to the, the lawn and garden guys. And that's a viable market and it overlaps with us. And now you're seeing companies like Bobcat advertising in dealer news to get tractor dealers in urban areas. And it's like, we're we're not the right channel. Oh no, we are the right channel for them because they've already saturated the the farm belt, they know their market. They want the fringe market. They want these guys to come in who have been effective as a power sport dealer because they'll kill it in the, in the implement business. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Moto Hunt Premium. Moto Hunt Premium empowers power sports dealers with data and technology to give the best possible market advantage on every vehicle at your dealership. Moto Hunt Premium offers a suite of features such as real-time market analysis, inventory management, and up-to-date pricing guides like JD Power and NPA. Dealers love to leverage the platform to identify potential inventory risks and potential issues with your online listings. And it also helps to execute make and model strategies, enabling dealers to help move inventory faster and make more profit. To start leveraging our technology at your dealership, go to motohuntpremium.com. That's motohuntpremium.com to learn more and request a free inventory audit for your dealership today. So, really? Okay. So you, you're, you know, uh, I'm seeing some tractors like uh, Kabuto and uh, you know High Sun and some of these other guys. You know, uh, you're you're saying that their target market is now the motorcycle dealers that are traditional, just you know, power sports, ATV, side by side, watercraft, motorcycle. They're trying to get into these dealerships to do what? These small these small equipments. Yeah, um, oh. and do rental fleet and have a trencher and a ditch witch and all that stuff out the the back door in those times when you're not selling new units at the front. You can still be renting equipment in an urban area. Because, you know, the, the home home improvement guy, he doesn't need to buy a ditch witch. He needs to rent it one weekend and, and get that trench line laid, and then he's done with it. Somebody has to service that. And who better than a, the guy who's got a trained mechanic and who's already been trained to, to factory specs by four or five motorcycle OEMs? Why not add about that? Yeah. About a, 
Ingersoll Rand, John Deere. I mean, the, the list goes on. Like I said, there was 40 of them names that we don't think of, and they all had a side-by-side -side product. Their side-by-side -side corral was uh, the biggest power sports pavilion I've seen outside of Dealer Expo. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, switching gears, uh, you know, kind of talk about dealers again, right? So you, dealer news, I kind of see as an aggregate, right? Uh, so this is where a lot of information is funneled up to, and you guys kind of disseminate the best of the best. In, in your time, or maybe even just in recent years, what are some good best practices, some good retail things, some tips and tricks we could talk about online, but... What I'm looking for, Robin, is mainly just, you know, what does dealer news put out there and say, hey, you really want to get your retail environment going? You really want to get your PA going? You want to get your service department up to par? Here's some of the best stuff that we've heard from our dealers. And, you know, boom, there it is. What, what have you got on that? The smartest guy in the room is the guy who's already walked that mile in your shoes. I've seen more problems solved by two dealers standing in a hallway outside of a 20 group meeting or even outside a, a national OEM dealer meeting. These guys know what it takes to, to do that. They know what's impacting you much more so than, than the guys in the ivory towers or overseas are going to know. And finding that, that right peer group is going to be how you get your mentor, where your best practices come from. Failing in that, well, Dealer News will we'll try and connect the dots as best we can. Um, we are of the dealer, by the dealer, and for the dealer, but I'm not a dealer. So I'm not the best person. I, I talk to dealers. I, I can share ideas from other guys, but I'm not going to be the guy who originates it and tells you how to run your business. That has to come from, from one of your immediate peers. Now, that being said, the, the 20 groups are the best thing going. If you're not a member of a 20 group, then you're missing the boat because, yeah, it's a, it's a pain in the ass. It costs you dues. It costs you time. You have to report your financials to a group. Well, guess what? That information came from everybody else in that 20 group. It's all shared. It gives you a benchmark. If you're not living up to the benchmark that the other 19 guys in your 20 group are, guess what? You're the weak link. You need to change your policies to match the number one in your group. And it's a small group. And they're, they're always put so that you're not immediate um, conflict of interest. Your, your territory is going to be a thousand miles away from this guy's. And not all of his plans are going to work for you, but enough common interest and, and enough success stories get shared in those 20 groups that that makes those guys that much stronger. Um, short of that, you get bought by the Elway group and you get trained up and you have um, the best mentors of the dealerships that are bought go in and they walk into every one of the stores in the family and they train those guys up. And maybe you experience that right now too. Some of the, the teams that, that go through and just the, the training, the mechanisms that have there, this is not hit and miss. And this is not a family run business where the kid inherits it. Whether he knows what he's doing or not, it doesn't matter. He's he's the son of the owner. So he's going to own this store someday. Now you, you got to earn it. You got to pay your dues and you have to educate yourself because until MPDA existed, there was nobody that was going to educate you from outside. Agree, hundred percent. I think that there's a lot of value in these twenty groups that uh, you know maybe a lot of people are missing out on. So let's talk about that. What if I've got a dealer listen to this now, right? They're hearing us discuss this topic. How would one start their journey to look for the the right kind of twenty group, or how would they go about searching one to join? Ask another dealer. Ask a, a dealer who's a member of a twenty group and see if it's a right fit for them. Um, or talk to the, the National Power Sport Dealer Association because that's going to be the clearinghouse with that sort of information and they're not going to steer their members wrong. And they do have a, an educational component that's going to come in very short order and it's going to handle basic training, phone etiquette, and, and just the, the general um, running of a store. So when you onboard this, this lot boy, there is a career path, there's education, there's something that will take that kid and advance them as far up the ladder as they want to go until they become the dealer principal and they're attending the 20 group and calling the shots for the, the store.
So that's something that we have not historically had as an industry. We were reliant on mom and pop kettle having good children to, to take over. But the Gail Worst of the world um, are the exception. And she is very exceptional. It's definitely not the rule. Yeah. So the opportunities, though, from outside our industry, if, if like me, you, you have no marketable skills at all, you can still find a, a path through power sports somehow, some way. I, I think you're a very humble guy, Robin. So I, you've got a lot of marketable skills, in my opinion. But uh, okay, so I mean, we've talked about a lot of things on this uh, recording here. Um, but as far as dealer news, right? Uh, so you're an advocacy of the NPDA, right? We have we have now our own association. There's the MIC, there's the AMA. You're an advocate of the 20 groups, the peer-to-peer groups, where we're talking about best practices between dealers trying to solve problems and reporting some of your financials and or metrics so that you can compare and be you know shooting towards that number one spot or or you know, consulting with that other dealer in your network of that 20 group so that you can get some of those metrics that you're looking for. What other types of resources or insights does dealer news as a publication put out there for dealers that would be helpful to them just as a, just as a general avid reader of your dealer news? Well, short of, of not knowing the guys, um, read the dealer profiles because these guys bear their souls. They will tell most of their secrets. Um, and that they're a good benchmark. And I think as an industry, we've always been uh, dominated by the 80-20 rule. 80% of the business is done by that 20% at the top tier. So learn from that top tier. That being said, I don't limit our profiles to size or success. Um, We did a dirt bike shop. Two guys dropped out of college and had 400 square feet and created a dirt bike shop. And they were one of our top 100 winners because they're passionate and they did more with less than anybody I've ever seen. And that, that sort of thing is possible too. So that's where... What you want to be is not limited by our industry, but certainly we can we can take you to where you want to go through these mechanisms. And now with NPDA and with 20 groups and with the MIC, um, I should give MIC a shout out. Everybody um, thinks, well, it's the OEM association and maybe it is, but who got us declared um, uh, during COVID times? Uh, Essential oh, business. We were essential because of yeah. what Scotch Legal and the, the government relations team was able to do. We were transportation. We were necessary. We all yeah. benefited from that as an entire industry because we did not close our doors. Maybe we had to deliver to the, the sidewalk or garage to garage delivery, whatever it was. We as an industry were resilient and reactive or proactive. We got in front of that and we made it happen. And MIC led that charge because it was the right thing to do. Not because dealers are dues paying members. We, we have dealer representation in each congressional district. Um at the MIC level, which is good, but we we needed to do that for our entire industry. And MIC does stuff like that every day. The the current legislation with PFAS and uh, the polyfluorides and all of the other nonsense chemicals um, that are going on out there, mm-hmm. MIC is, is fighting to protect us, putting a timeline on it. What, how do we do this? How do we retain our business without just shutting down completely? And it goes back, uh, think about when the lead laws came in and Malcolm Smith, my hero, said, no, I'm going to fight the lead laws. And he sold motorcycles and ATVs to children because that were banned. And he did it in front of TV cameras and said, you know, hey, we just want to ride. Kids are not going to be eating carburetors. Let them go out and ride these things. And eventually the laws did get changed and we did sell things. We will get past PFAS. We did get past COVID. Um, we did that with help from the MIC. Same thing, uh, AMA protects our rights to ride land issues, that sort of thing. They're out there doing what they need to do to support all of us as an industry. They don't have a dealer-specific component. They're AMA Hall of Fame. Grant Langston, one of our own, ex-racer turned dealer. Okay, well, we'll take it any way we can. Um, that that sort of thing is is really good and powerful for all of us as an industry. 
And now within PDA, that's that third uh, leg of the, the stool, um, that makes for a stronger uh, industry. So uh, not much of a math guy, but they, they say if you distribute the weight equally on a triangle, then it's that much stronger. So that's what we need. Um, and that's what the dealers need at their level. And hopefully dealer news can connect those dots and deliver a little bit every every issue, every e-blast, every day, three or four times. Um, not all of it's going to pertain to you. Not all of it is even relevant. Some of it's kind of stupid and silly. I like that stuff. Um, but it's it's on, it's going to be relevant to some dealer somewhere or I won't run it. I love that. I love that. You, you have a constitution about you that I can definitely hear that has been going strong for such a long time. So my hat's off to you, Robin. You, you put out a good, a good service to the dealers in terms of disseminating all this information from all over the place. And I think it's just a wonderful thing. So as we kind of close up uh, at the end of our conversation here, it's been a pleasure talking to you, by the way. Um, I always like to end with uh, a looking forward statement. You know, I, I ask everybody that comes on to the podcast here, just more or less what things look like in the future for the industry, not necessarily to what Dealer News is doing, but just where's our industry going? What are some hopeful things that we can maybe look forward to? OEM related, dealer related, consumer related, and just kind of open the mic to you. Manage your expectations. Um, go back to 2019 if you if you've been in business long enough and, and base your decisions on where you were then and and monitor your your growth and progress. If you're doing better now than you were then, then you're to the good. Um, and if we can retain 10 or 15 percent of that COVID bubble of customers for life, all of us will be doing 10 or 15 percent better because of that. Um, the uh, dirt bikes and adventure bikes, even in the face of a recession, even in the face of free money drying up, even in the face of all of these headwinds. They're up 14%, 14.7%, according to the, the latest retail sales report from the MIC. That segment of the market, and again, that's where kids' bikes come in. That's where our entry levels come in. But it's also where the guy who ages out, you can't race motocross anymore, but you still buy an adventure bike and you go out and you tour, you spend money, you burn tires, you burn through batteries, you do that sort of thing. That helps the dealer. That helps our industry. That helps everybody. Um, and it is a product for life. So we need more of those kind of wins. We need to focus on those positive things that we do have as an industry. And, and celebrate our successes. I love that. So let's say a dealer goes back and they review some of the data. They you know delineate the the, the COVID bubble March 2020 to last year, maybe, right? And they're looking at 2018 or 2019 as a comparative. Let's say they're doing great. Awesome. What does the projection outlook in the next five to 10 years look like in the industry? Do we see shifts in consumer trends? Is there more delivery to home? Is there more electrification? Anything like that industry-wide? There are all of those things. Uh, we are very blessed to have Dr. Paul Weinberger is one of the, the advisors that I have on the dealer news team. We've got two PhDs because one wasn't good enough. I needed two, but he's a futurist <laughs> and a forecaster, and he gets paid lots and lots of money by the automotive OEMs and by people like Procter & Graham to tell us where we're going to be. Um, he told us before COVID where we should be and what we needed to be doing, and uh, we listened marginally. He is telling us now that it's going to take upwards of 24 months from the time that we bottom out. And according to him, we haven't bottomed out yet. So it's it's going to, the, the two to three year outlook could be pretty tough. That's why we need to, to accentuate these positives that we have because short-term it's it's going to be difficult. Um, ask him about EVs. And he said, you guys already missed that boat. You, you should have been there 10 years ago. Should have been there 30 years ago when Yamaha introduced their product. And he's right. Um, how we get caught up, I don't know. That's that's for smarter people to figure out. But he did give us the, the his optimistic view is that 
we are going to survive. We are doing well. Um, we are different than the car market. We're different than the, the commodities market and the staples and the grocery business and everything else that he tracks and monitors in good way. So other the real world is going to suffer even worse than we are. So that's consolation. Misery loves company. Well, hey, at least we're not in those industries. Um, but we need to be smarter about what we do. And we need to again, celebrate the, the successes that we do have and, and, and ride it out. And the 08 crash, the, the ATC crash, all of those crash. Historically, we have faced those things and we've come back with year-on-year double-digit growth when it comes through. So that 24 months elapses, everything will be growth from there. Um, so two years, not so good. Three to five years, trending upward. I love that. Take every win for what it's worth, right? Yep, absolutely. All right, man. Well, I, again, I appreciate you coming on. Um, how do people get a hold of you? Which website can they go to see your information? Dealer News, can you give us a little bit of that? Dealernews.com, pretty easy. And then there's upper left-hand corner, a subscribe button that will get you there. On that landing page, um, all of the, the news items are in uh, descending order. And then there, once you subscribe, there's the twice weekly e-blast. So you'll get that news fresh or you can get it going to the website. Um, and then all of the social media channels were out there. Uh, look at the YouTube channel, archive, go back down. Uh, Mark Rogers did a series of sales success in 60 seconds. There's uh, three hours worth of 60 second, how to improve your store archive there, free for the taking. That, that's the other thing. Dealer News from day one, 1965, we've been a free resource to the industry. We have never charged a subscription price. And now in the digital age, we certainly can't charge for something. So um, we, we were already ahead of that game. When it came time to for newsstands to, to shut down and, and people to stop printing magazines, that didn't hurt us because we've, we've always been for free. We've always had to succeed and deliver a message to the dealers at no charge to those dealers. Well, there it is, folks. Definitely make sure to subscribe. I myself am an a avid reader of all your things, uh, and but I have not checked out your YouTube yet. So I'm going to, after this meeting, go check out some of those videos and the uh, How to Improve Your Store series. I love that. So if- uh, in 60 seconds. It's, and some are pretty basic, but we forget what we forget. So it's it's a great refresher. I don't care how many times you, you've done it. And he's a great presenter. He was uh, the head of Harley Davidson's PhD program. So he is a master trainer. He knows exactly how to do it. Um, and he's also got a, a radio and TV background. So it's it's top quality production. It's it's there and it's free. I love that. We're, we're all going to definitely go check that out. So just want to say thank you again, Robin. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like. And if you're not already subscribed to the Dealership Fix It podcast, do it there. Subscribe to Dealer News and make sure you're checking out all the social media there. Make sure to share it with a friend. And uh, hopefully we get more audience listening to all this great news that uh, we're putting out there, all the different interviews, people like Robin from Dealer News and uh, elsewhere in the industry, providing good value to the dealerships that are out there. But uh, thank you again, Robin. Appreciate you. And we'll see everybody next time. Great. Thanks for having me.